Welcome to episode 207 of the X-Files Retrospective Podcast, released through Bureau 42. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This time around, we are talking about Season 9, Episode 3, Diamonicus. The original air date was December 2nd, 2001. The IMDb user score is 7.5 out of 10. And the action primarily takes place in Virginia and West Virginia. Scully is returned at least part-time from her maternity leave, working as an instructor at the Quantico Academy. It's the West Virginia Academy. She is dealing with some fallout of having been associated with the X-Files and students asking if she's ever killed a vampire and whatnot. So the X-Files unit is clearly very well known amongst the students and recruits at this time, which seems a little out of place. At least it does to me. Doggett and Reyes are called in because of Reyes's background when there's a killing that looks very much like a ritualistic killing, right down to snakes sewn inside one of the victim's abdomens. And this is part of what I think bothers me a little bit about the Reyes character. There's nothing wrong with the way Annabeth Gish plays her. I think she's a very capable actress. I really enjoyed her in The Last Supper. A uh, very twisted comedy from 1995, which is referenced here, where she and a group of liberals host dinner debates. They end up bringing in a guest because one of their cars broke down. They invite him in. The guest is played by Bill Paxton. He turns out to be extremely racist, violent. They end up killing him in self-defense. And rather than report it, they just bury him in the backyard and keep going. And then start killing others if they cannot change their minds over these dinners. So again, very twisted comedy. Ron Perlman, Jason Alexander, Brian Dennehy, Courtney B. Vance. It's an incredible cast. Very well worth tracking down. Almost completely off topic, aside from the fact that they're burying him in the garden. So there is a one-off reference line of dialogue to that movie in this episode. But as things go on, Reyes feels this strong evil as she's done before and she talks about how rare this is but we've really only seen her work what five cases so far there was the case of Doggett's son then she was brought in again and we saw her working another case where she felt the same evil presence that she felt with Doggett's sons in that case and then coupled by the you could really call the season 8 finales and season 9 premieres really one big case. And now this one, and she's sensing that evil again. And that rubbed me the wrong way. In the X-Files, I I do like it when the X-Files impact the investigators with Scully's pregnancy, her cancer, the chip, Mulder's sister. That all is fine. But when the investigator themselves could be an X-File because of these paranormal feelings. That, to me, doesn't feel like the X-Files. It doesn't feel like normal, capable investigators getting drawn into this. It just... It rubs me the wrong way. It's not necessarily a wrong choice. It's just a choice I would have preferred if they hadn't made. But that's my own personal tastes. And that's not what this is about. No one is going to agree with every creative decision made on any show that lasts over 200 episodes. 
So as things continue, Reyes and Skelly get more and more convinced that this really is a case of demonic possession. Reyes becomes absolutely convinced. Scully may or may not be convinced, but she's certainly very open to the possibility. Whereas Doggett keeps digging and finds out that, yeah, there is someone who was in the same psychiatric hospital as the suspects, who was an expert in satanic rituals, literally wrote the book on the subject. So he's the one that says, yeah, this is what's happening. This guy is setting all this up and manipulating us. And in the long term, it does seem to look like that. But there are also events like an absolutely inhuman amount of vomit coming out of the guy all over Doggett that he denies. There's people who see his face as a monster with a bit of a monster mask. So there's some elements of both involved here. So whether it was demonic possession or whether he just was a demon and was manipulating it, that is not clear. Now on the production end, this was written and directed by Frank Spotnitz. It's his second episode as director, but way past second as writer. And this started filming on September 12th, 2001. So this was right after the attacks in New York. And... America felt different. <laughs> I'm in Canada, and it felt different. We hadn't experienced anything like that that close to home. And Robert Patrick, in the Behind the X-Files book, I've mentioned it before, it's written by Matt Hurwitz and Chris Knowles. He said that he was having a hard time delivering his lines that day. In a one-camera show, a conversation between two people is usually filmed three times. So if everybody nails every take, you're going to have one take with the camera pointed at one person. You're going to go through it again with the camera pointed at the other person the entire time. And you're going to go through it a third time in what they call the master shot, which is where both people are on or in the frame or on screen at the same time. So that gives them what they call coverage. So they can do the close-ups for more impact, do the further back or the medium shots when they need that room to show you what's going on, where they are relative to each other. And at this point, Robert Patrick was such a professional who prided himself on being prepared that they could consistently start the scenes pointing the camera at him. So while the people he was playing against could take some time to warm up and get set up, he could do it right consistently on the first take. So by filming him first, they'd have a more likely chance of getting usable footage. And then they'd take a break while they reset it up, move the cameras to come back and do it all again with the camera pointed either in the master shot or at the person he was playing against. So that was a source of pride. And on September 12, 2001, he was struggling to do it and forgetting lines. And it just, it wasn't the type of professional performance that he was used to giving. So going through the guest cast, James Remar does play Kobold, the guy who apparently was possessed. And he's got 171 acting credits to his name 
for some reason, the IMDb currently shows that he's only known for Sex in the City of Farewell as himself. But he's been on 45 episodes of Black Lightning as Peter Gamby. He's Captain Buck Green in the new Magnum P.I. Just scrolling through his listings, he was Frank Gordon on Gotham. He was Tonrak in The Legend of Korra. He had a recurring role on Grey's Anatomy, another on Dexter, Ben 10. He was the voice of Sideswipe in Transformers Dock of the Moon. He was a general in X-Men First Class. Guest spot as Warden Cole on Cool Hand Guerrero in The Human Target. He was the Black Mask in The Batman. He was Jonah Prowse in Jericho. Six episodes of that series. He was in the Battlestar Galactica reboot series in both parts of Home as Meyer. So there's no shortage of credits that this guy has to his name. Dating back to On the Yard in 1978 and then The Warriors as Ajax in 1979. Andy Chapman plays a nurse who does not survive the episode. 57 acting credits to her name. Most recently, as Dolores Maloney in General Hospital, that's from 2020. At least that's most recent at the time of this recording. She is also known for her work in Shortcuts, SWAT, ER, and she was the voice of Storm in the Pride of the X-Men cartoon that lasted a grand total of one episode. This is the one where Wolverine was Canadian in the dialogue, but voiced with an Australian accent. Sarah Benoit has 30 acting credits to her name, best known for The Kids Are Alright, Here and Now, and the TV series Lethal Weapon. Her most recent credit tracked on the IMDb is Station 19. Of course, these days, that could just mean that she's also doing pre-production or working in shows where the production is stalled because of COVID, or she could be doing stage work, who knows. Her credits go back to 1975. Tim Halligan has 48 acting credits to his name, most recently in 2015. He's best known for his work in Space Cowboys, Freedom Riders, The Island, and Keith. His earliest credits are from 1982. Now, James Reckhart has this, as per Paul Gerlach, as his number one credit on the IMDb. He also worked in The Eleventh Hour, No Ordinary Family, and Criminal Minds. He's got 11 credits in the camera and electrical department, as lighting technicians, crane operators, and so forth. He's got five stunt credits and 12 acting credits. So his first acting credit is from the Fallen Angels TV series in 1995. He had an uncredited role in the Schwarzenegger movie Eraser. He was the man hands uncredited in the Bizarro Jerry episode of Seinfeld. So he was just the hands. And this was his next job. Then he went on to Unsolved Mysteries, America's Most Wanted, Eleventh Hour, Criminal Minds, No Ordinary Family, NCIS LA, Rizzolian Isles, and most recently Follow Me from 2016. Troy Mitleider plays Dr. Kenneth Richman. This is his first acting credit as far as the IMDb is concerned. 31 acting credits to his name. Most recently in 2018, although he did produce a short in 2012 that hasn't been released yet, 
his IMDb best known for is including his stunt work. So he's done stunts in actually the second season premiere of The Mandalorian, as well as Lucifer, and he's played QA officers and SEALs in Startup and in Westworld. Lou Richards plays Officer Custer. His acting debut from the IMDb's perspective was playing strong in an episode of the Logan's Run TV series in 1977. He's got 118 acting credits to his name, some of which are still in post-production, so the most recent release is 2019, but he does have six completed projects or projects in post-production that haven't quite come out yet. He is best known for How to Get Away with Murder, Gloria, Grey's Anatomy, and Challenge of the Gobots. Robert Beckwith has 25 acting credits to his name, best known for Scrubs, Some Guy Who Kills People, Destruction Las Vegas, and his role as an FBI cadet in this episode of The X-Files, although that does span two years. So he's actually an FBI cadet in three episodes in this season. This is his first of three appearances as this unnamed cadet. His most recent acting credit is from 2016. Ruben Grundy has 60 acting credits to his name, best known for 40 Days and 40 Nights, Sweet November, The Pursuit of Happiness, and The Princess Diaries. The most recent credit is from 911 in 2020. His earliest credit is from 1989 in an episode of Santa Barbara. Shane Nickerson plays the police photographer in here. It's one of only 15 acting credits, most recently Blackish from 2018. He's still working as a producer, most recently a documentary from 2020. And he is best known for producer work on the IMDb here. He produced Ridiculousness, Robert Dryden's Fantasy Factory, Robin Big, and The Dude Perfect Show. And finally, Elijah Mahar plays a guard. That is his number one pick on the IMDb's top four best known for. Other roles include JAG, NCIS, and Crusade. He's got 11 acting credits to his name, including roles in Profiler, Beverly Hills 90210, The West Wing, Guilty as Charged Philly. There's a break from the Sex Files episode in 2001 until Shapetown USA in 2011. Again, IMDb only tracks movies, TV, video games, and other things that are made available to the entire public. Maybe there was stage work in there. I'm not sure what the cause is for that break. And then NCIS and the Extreme Measures TV series followed after that. That's about all I have to say about Diamonicus. Join us again in two weeks' time when we look at 4D. Thank you for listening.